Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to 99 and a Half Won't Do, as recorded by Wilson Pickett and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Steve Cropper. Between 1961 and 1970, Cropper was a fixture at Memphis's legendary Stax Records and Studio, where he worked as a producer, guitarist, engineer, artist, A&R man, and songwriter. During that era, he penned over a dozen songs that reached the top ten on Billboard's R&B and pop charts, including Otis Redding's Mr. Pitiful and Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour, Don't Fight It, and 6345789, Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, as well as Seesaw, which was a hit for both Don Covey and Aretha Franklin. Additionally, his band, Booker T. and the MGs, scored with several of Cropper's co-written instrumental singles, such as Green Onions, Hip Hugger, Soul Limbo, and Time is Tight. In the 1970s, Steve joined the original incarnation of the Blues Brothers Band and appeared prominently in the film. Additionally, he produced memorable albums such as Tower of Power's We Came to Play and John Cougar's Nothing Matters and What If It Did. Cropper issued a pair of solo albums in the 1980s and went on to release more recent albums in collaboration with former Rascals leader and previous Songcraft guest Felix Cavalieri. The multiple Grammy winner was named by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the top 100 guitar players of all time, while Mojo magazine named him the second greatest guitarist after Jimi Hendrix. His reputation has earned him the opportunity to work with Big Star, John Lennon, Levon Helm, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Tom Petty, Johnny Cash, Neil Young, Stevie Wonder, Peter Frampton, Jeff Beck, Paul Simon, Buddy Guy, Elton John, Joe Lewis Walker, and many others. In the 1990s, he was inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame, the Musicians Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cropper received Tennessee's Arts and Humanities Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004 and was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005. Well, I think that we can safely say, after knowing one another for 20-some-odd years, that for both of us, Steve Cropper was on our absolute top 10 list of guys we wanted to interview on this show. Dream list. Yeah, I mean, I remember waiting in line with you to meet Steve Cropper, and here we actually just got to talk to him today. This is a guy that I would wait in line to meet. Right. And we got to sit and talk to him. For Just having chats. Yeah. Which <laughs> it's funny. It kind of got me thinking, you know, we've, we've got all these people we love to talk to on this show. Right. And I was wondering, you know, who are some of your like maybe top, I don't know, top five guests that you'd be interested oh, in man. having it. And let's, let's go ahead and say maybe <laughs> taking out names that are kind of like giant artists that the world already knows, right. you know, the Paul McCartney's, the Tom Petty's, Bob I mean, there's obvious, yeah, right, yeah. obvious people that we would love to have on the show. If, if you're listening Paul, Bob, Tom. Um, <laughs> we would welcome you. Yeah. We'll make that very clear. But to, to go through, you know, because one thing that we do like to do here is kind of like highlight some of those names that the general public might not know. Right. Um, you know, to maybe go through our little wish list that we're still holding on Man. to of some of these names. Um, I don't know if I could come up with five. We could probably do this all day. <laughs> right. We could um, do like, could we do like top 200. Would that be? Let's do that. I think that's fine. <laughs> um, 
you know, I mean, I, I can think of one right up. Maybe if we go back and forth one at a time, we can have a little time okay, to good. think about then this. Then I can, I can uh, give me a minute to... Yeah. You know, there, there's one that I think of, um, and it's a name that people might not know terribly well, but they do know the songs. It's a guy named Mark James. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I want him on my list. Yeah. Well, no, too late. Uh, <laughs> Mark James wrote Always On My Mind, uh, the classic hit uh, for Willie Nelson, uh, Elvis Presley, and so many others. and. Uh, Suspicious Minds, which was Elvis' oh, last number right? one hit. Um, Moody Blue, which was Elvis' last kind of hit at all. And yeah. the title of his last album that he made while he was still alive. There were a lot of Elvis albums. And you're, you're fond of Elvis, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken. I am. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's somebody that I have that I listen to on occasion. Um, God, Mark James. Mark James would be great. So. All right, all right. You've set the bar. Um, you know who I'd like to talk to? I'm not a thousand percent sure that he is still living because there's not that much known about him. <laughs> Dave Bartholomew. Huh. He he's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I think he might be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too, but he and Fats Domino were like nice. you know, and I think Fats is still alive too. These guys are like a hundred and sixty. Uh, <laughs> Dave Bartholomew is I think he's seriously close to hundred years old. I, wow. I think he's still alive down in, in New Orleans. But uh Can you and, imagine the stories? Oh my gosh. Uh so yeah, Dave Bartholomew for me is one of those kind of like a name that not everybody knows, but I would love to talk to him. Okay, I'm I'm gonna throw out another name. You know, it's very connected to uh, kind of a, a a artist that I'm passionate about, uh, Bernie Taupin. Right. Bernie Taupin, uh, for those of you who may not know, was Elton John's lyricist. It still yeah. is Elton John's lyricist. Elton doesn't write lyrics. Um, these guys collaborated on all those hit songs you know from the '70s. Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics. Um, I don't think he's a guy who does a ton of interviews. Right. Um, but I would love to hear what he has to say about all those songs that shaped my life. Yeah. And he's got opinions. He has plenty of opinions. <laughs> he would be an interesting yeah. guy. All right. Let's see. Lyricists. Uh, uh, if we're going lyricists, then I will pick. I'm just going to copy. I'm going to let you set the vibe here okay. so that I'm a little off the hook. Uh, so, okay. A, a lyricist that I would love uh, to talk to is John Bettis. Oh, um, yeah. John Bettis wrote human nature michael yeah. jackson i mean killer song crazy for you madonna um slow hand pointer sisters i mean Dude. killer songs so he's a guy that i feel like i don't hear a whole lot about mm -hmm. and i so this one's a selfish one i would just like to personally learn more about john bettis well and and maybe you know even if he doesn't agree to the interview maybe he'll just talk to you maybe he will just maybe do we a can phone just, conversation with or you. maybe we can uh, like text each other or secretly record it <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we don't do that, by the way. Okay, <laughs> since you since you said human nature and you said Michael Jackson, I'm gonna actually piggyback off of what you said. All right. And suggest Rod Temperton. Oh, dude, yes. Rod Temperton, yes. who who wrote you know a bunch of the stuff on Off the Wall. Right. Also was a co-writer on the song Thriller. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people don't know that wrote a, a, a ton of R&B stuff. Boogie Nights. Did he really? Boogie Nights. I didn't yeah. know that. Yep. So uh, Rod Temperton would be fantastic to talk to. Really interesting that Rod Temperton is a white guy who wrote a bunch of this kind of R&B stuff. I also never knew Rod Temperton was white. Yeah, he is. Maybe I should just interview you. I'm learning some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, Thriller alone would I be I would worth. never do the interview. I will not agree. <laughs> You're too big. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Um, all right, you know, what I have popping in my head right now is I'm thinking of like... Uh, Holland Dozier Holland, uh, Gamble and Huff, yeah. Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Okay, I would probably give an appendage to speak to any of them. Right. But since you're forcing <laughs> me to narrow it down to five, right. I'm going to set a rule here and say, okay, I'm not going to do a songwriting team. Okay. So, okay. so I'm going to stick with individuals. Um, so the next one I would say uh, would be Will Jennings. Will oh. Jennings is a guy who, to me, is kind of like, 
a John Bettis type, right, you know, right. a name that people don't hear. But I mean, dude, my heart will go on. Celine yeah. Dion, uh, Tears in Heaven, right? Um, roll with it, like all those Steve Winwood yeah, hits yeah, yeah. in the Higher 80s. Love. Yeah, didn't we almost have it all? Yeah. Um, I think he wrote Up Where We Belong. The uh, oh, wow. Joe Cocker. Yeah, I think he wrote that. Um, my Heart Will Go On. That was in a small independent film. Wasn't yes, it? it did quite well. I yeah, think uh, people enjoyed yeah. that that movie. Um, yeah, so uh, I think John Bettis and Will Jennings are, are kind of in the same wheelhouse, but yeah. I got to put them both in my top five because they're just guys I'd like to know more about. Okay. Since you said My Heart Will Go On, I'll actually tell you that for a long time, I thought that song was written by the woman that I'm going to suggest next, the ballad queen of all ballad queens, Diane Warren. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're talking about uh, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing for Aerosmith, How Do I Live Without You, the Leon Rhymes song, right. uh, Because You Loved Me, Celine right, Dion. Right. Uh, Diane Warren has been all over the radio and someone I would love to sit down and talk to. Yeah, yeah, totally. I almost think of Diane Warren. She almost is a celebrity songwriter. She, she right, is her name is known. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of like a, a Burt Bacharach or a Paul Williams or, or a Jimmy Webb, you know. All, or Max Martin. Who? Yeah, Max Martin. I mean, <laughs> can we put those guys on our right. list? Too? I think we're going to exceed five here if we're not careful. <laughs> um, okay, okay. I'm going to do, I know what my number one is personally. I know okay. I know we're not ranking them, so I don't know. You're probably not ranking yours, but I'm, in, I'm mentally ranking so I, I know what my number one is. I'm going to save for last. Okay. I'm going to cheat because I can't, I, I cannot narrow it down. I'm going to do a tie. Okay. So number two. All right. My tie uh, first person in the number two position would be Dan Penn. Oh, all dude. muscle shoals stuff for sure. The Memphis stuff, dark end of the street, do right woman. Yep. I mean, some of the greatest songs of all time. And, you know, since we've already done Spooner Oldham, Dan could come in and either confirm or deny right. whatever Spooner told us. <laughs> right, right. So uh, Dan Penn um, would be, he's a guy, he has been an artist before, but yeah. he's more known as a songwriter. Yeah. Which kills me because there are artists like Willie Nelson or Chris Christopherson or, yep. I mean, Smokey Robinson. I mean, I think of those people as primarily songwriters. right. But, but they're also but artists. The world knows, you know, them, the world as knows them as artists. So like I can't pick them either. Um, but, so anyway, number two, the tie would be Dan Penn. And here's the other one. I think you're going to like this. I, the, I, I seriously want to do this. This is shooting for the stars. You ready for this? Okay. Phil Spector, jailhouse interview. <laughs> I'm serious. Is that allowed? Can, can people in jail uh, be? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Let's just. If we could interview Phil Spector. Let's do it. A prison interview. I mean, dude, the guy is more known as kind of a tabloid guy yeah. for understandable reasons. But the songs he wrote, oh, I and mean, part of the fabric of American yeah. musical history. And the records he was a part of yeah, as a producer as well. Yeah, I I don't even have anything to say to that, I, except for <laughs> I, I'm in. Yeah. I, I think if we were like 60 Minutes... We might have a better shot at getting a jailhouse interview with Phil Spector. But hey, you know what? You know Don't what? go for the big dog every time. How about the, the scrappy indie guy? You I know? think there's a character and a gravitas to our show that, that would be taken seriously enough to be... In jail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but compared to a 60 Minutes, I think we're the, kind of the 60 Minutes of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, many of our podcasts are 60 Minutes. That's long. <laughs> very much. This one is going to be much longer at the rate we're going. Right. But I would... Uh, <laughs> I'm so I'm putting it out in the universe. I want a jailhouse interview with Phil Spector. Boom! Dude. I said it. I said it. I don't know how I followed that, but I'll take the opportunity you just gave me to come up with a tie of my own. All right. Uh, so it, you're gonna steal yeah, my tie. This is idea. hard to narrow down. We're the worst at rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so I've got two guys who are super producers. Right. And names kind of maybe well-known to some of the public, but their their careers go deeper, I think, than right. any of us even know. One of them's Mutt Lang. Oh, dude, yes. You're talking about uh, Highway to Hell, Back in Black. Both of those albums produced and covered a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Then Def Leppard's Pyromania, yep. Hysteria. Yeah. Brian Adams, everything I do, then all the way to all the that. Shania Twain stuff. That right, was, right, and and that's all the stuff I'm leaving out. <laughs> Mutt Lang, famously reclusive, but does he live in a castle? I think I heard he I lives think, in a castle. Yeah, I think he lives in some sort of Bavarian chateau. I would be as excited to go to a castle as I would to a jail. Yeah, <laughs> sentences you don't hear often. <laughs> so the second half of my tie would be Glenn Ballard. Oh, dude, another yes, giant yes, super yes. producer, right? Um, Co-writer, though, of Man in the Mirror. Right. Um, producer Alanis. of Alanis's Jagged Little Pill, giant, right. giant record, and so on and so on yeah, and so forth. Right, more, right. more records than I could possibly even list. Man. So, yeah, love to talk to both of those guys, one of those guys. That's my tie. Yeah, okay. I, I would love a good my tie. <laughs> um, okay, so does that five? Did you do all that, your yeah, five? Yeah, that, that okay. closes me out. I okay. ended with a tie. So you did your five. All right, so um, here's my number one. And this is going to sound a little anticlimactic, and I don't mean that as disrespect to this writer. Right. But I think after dropping the Phil Spector jailhouse interview, right, I should have saved that for 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 a number one because it, it's got it's got eyebrow raising right power. But here's my true number one. Okay. This is the guy that I am on a mission to find. His name is Rudy Clark. Hmm. And I don't think many people know the name Rudy Clark. I don't know that I know the name Rudy Clark. So. Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about Rudy Clark. I, I can't tell you a thing about Rudy Clark, actually, but I can tell you some, some songs that he wrote. All right. Rudy Clark wrote uh, Good Lovin'. Oh, yeah. He wrote uh, Everybody Plays the Fool. Yeah. He wrote Got My Mind Set on You, which we, oh, we know from Harrison, the George yeah. Harrison version, yeah. but was originally like a, an R&B hit back in the day. Uh, it's in his Kiss. Oh, yeah. Jeez. To my knowledge, I have not been able to find any interviews with Rudy Clark. I, I don't want to say definitively, but I don't think Rudy Clark has been interviewed. At least Why? not. I don't. Right. So I don't know if he's. I mean, I seriously don't even know if this guy is still living or not. I think he is, but I don't even know anybody that knows him. I am on like a quest to find wow. Rudy Clark. So I'm just going to put this out there. If anyone listening knows Rudy Clark or knows someone that knows Rudy Clark or knows someone who knows someone who, who knows Rudy <laughs> Clark, please. I am, uh, I'm putting, I'm putting this out there yeah. as well. I would, I mean, that's a guy. I just feel like we got to talk to Dude, I would love that one. And it's, it's funny. There are names that we didn't even mention, you know, like the Jimmy jam and Terry Lewis. Oh gosh. Yes. Um, oh man. You think about younger guys like Ryan Tedder. There's yeah. Cara Diaguardi. I mean, I don't think that we will ever run out of great songwriters to talk to. Well, we'll certainly never run out of ideas. None of these no. people have talked to us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think the future of Songcraft is alive and well, yeah. as long yeah. as there are so many of those great writers to talk to. And, you know, today's conversation with Steve Cropper uh, was just one of my absolute favorites. Yep. And we were talking about stories about Otis Redding and stories about Sam and Dave and stories about, you know, writing the amazing Booker T and the MGs, you know, hit Green Onions. Right. Um, I think everybody's going to love what they hear from Steve today. He, it, even if you don't know the names of the songs, listen, because you'll know them when you hear them. You remember that song, Redemption Day by Sheryl Crow? Oh, yeah. Today is my redemption day. I met Steve Cropper when we were in high school. Hmm. I knew who he was. 
Uh, but he had just gotten finished touring with uh, Neil Young, who was out on the road with Pearl Jam. Oh. And when I met him, I asked him a lot of questions about Eddie Vedder, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't regret. Right. It's just that we had a limited amount of time. And, you know, I think maybe Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett might have been <laughs> some people I might have wanted to talk about. But that was my high school self. Right. You know, and so today I hope to redeem myself with uh, our conversation with Steve Cropper talking about some of the absolute legends in addition right. to Eddie Vedder. God, I didn't ask him about Eddie with. once. Yeah, I don't even I know how you restrain yourself. Well, uh, let's check it out. Yep. Oh, yes, I do, child. Steve, welcome to Songcraft. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So you were born on a farm in Missouri and kind of spent your earliest years there before you moved to Memphis with your family. Is that right? Yep. It's not easy raising a farm, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's, uh, they, the chores are there whether you like it or not. They don't create work for you. It's things that have to be done. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, what kind of music were you listening to in those days? Well, the the fact is, I didn't listen to hardly any unless we were in the car because we didn't have electricity. Wow! <laughs> till I was about I don't know seven years old or something like that. So, Man, uh, the, the music around where I was was very diverse. So it was either something classical or it was how much is that dog in the window or sometimes <laughs> hey there what's behind the green door and right those right. kind of things. Uh, I did get exposed, obviously, to a little bit of church and gospel, uh, but I but I got to hear a few bands when I was old old enough to be tagging tagging along to right. local fairs where musicians would be playing and stuff. So I probably got influenced somehow by that. Well, I understand that you know by the time you were in high school and and you were obviously in Memphis at that point, you um, had a band called the Royal Spades, which eventually morphed into the into the Marquees and and became an important part of the start of of Memphis's you know legendary Stax label as we've come to know it. And you know of course the Marquees scored a top five pop and R and B hit with Last Night in 1961, but your first appearance on the Billboard chart as a songwriter didn't come until the following year when the Marquis' Popeye Stroll just barely cracked the top 100. And that's a song that that's credited to you and and Booker T. Jones. And I'd love to to hear you talk a little bit about how you and Booker first met and how you very first got involved in in writing songs together. Well, Booker materialized. He'd already done a few sessions playing horn and stuff, playing baritone and so forth. Uh, we were looking to put together a rhythm section, and Jim Stewart came to me and said, "Help help us find a piano player," because we'd used a few guys, but there wasn't anybody that we wanted to put you know, on a permanent basis. And I was asking around, and Floyd Newman, who was our more permanent uh, baritone player, right? I went to him because he, he was around the school and knew a lot of musicians, and I asked him if he knew any piano players that might be interested in a full-time job to work as a session player. Yeah, And he suggested Booker, so I went over there and uh, to Booker's house. He told me where he lived. And his mom answered the door and I and told her who I was. She said, yeah, come on, come on in. 
because I already talked to Booker and told him I was coming over. Sure. And I go back in the den, he's playing guitar, and I'm going, wait a minute, I'm looking for a, a piano player, not a guitar player. <laughs> right, right. Well, and of course, the world soon learned that uh, Booker could play all kinds of instruments, and his memorable organ part on Green Onions, which you guys wrote together, uh, between his organ and your guitar, I mean, that thing just became uh, a, a massive hit. about the green onions um when we started um finally put the band together the the rhythm section at the studio at stacks we're going pretty good and jim stewart had asked us would we come in on a sunday well we only work monday through friday and of course we all agreed said yeah he said i've got this artist i want you guys to cut a couple of sides on because i'm thinking about maybe signing him maybe putting a record on him would you guys come in and right we normally didn't do what you would call uh, demo sessions. We didn't audition or demo people and, and with a band. I mean, if we were had the band in there, we were there very seriously trying to cut a hit. Right. And uh, that day, that session, Sunday afternoon, and the artist did not come into the studio. Hmm. Um, and so we were just jamming around, playing around, and yeah. uh, playing some blues, more like uh, it was a, uh, the song is the flip side of Green Onions, the single. Uh, and we were just clowning around on uh, blues and F and something that we'd normally play, uh, maybe something like that as a filler to, to really <laughs> chase the time of night away when right. we're playing night gigs. It's kind of that kind of music, that kind of style. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Jim was all, all ready to record and all whenever the artist showed, and we started clowning around with a song, and when Al Jackson counted off, Jim Stirp pushed the record button and recorded it. And we get through, and we're kind of laughing at what we just did and all that, and Jim Stewart gets on the talk back and says, hey, guys, come in and listen to this. It's pretty good. And we go, why, he recorded that. <laughs> so that's what we did. We went in. We couldn't believe he recorded it. And he said, you know, if we decided to put something like this out on a record, do you have anything we could put on the B-side? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, we didn't. And we looked dumbfounded and going, is he serious? And I looked at Booker <laughs> in a few minutes. I said, you played me a riff a couple of weeks ago that might be good for a song. Do you remember that riff? I remember it being pretty good, but I don't remember what it was. He said, well, let's go down to the organ. I'll see it. He went down. He played a couple of things and played that riff. And I said, that's it. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and everybody liked it. And they said, okay, let's make something out of it. And we did. And we just put together, you know, eight bar blues or whatever, twelve bar blues, whatever it is. But uh, he started playing that, and I think about the right after the second take, Jim Stewart said, "Steve, that thing you're doing in the middle." <laughs> he said, "Why don't you put that on the intro and uh, make that the intro of the song?" Which I did. Those little shank things. Right. And uh, when it comes your turn after two verses, play just play a regular solo. And that's sort of what I did, and that's Green Onions. <laughs> wow. Which is out there today, and it's real funny when you call me, I get to hear it because it's my ringtone. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I never get tired of hearing that song. Uh, I'm really sure. Don't. It's interesting that it's lived this long, and it's still. I was about to say, the whole world hasn't fresh. gotten tired of listening to that song. <laughs> you know, um, talking about kind of what 
what makes a hook to a song and what creates the instincts of a songwriter. You know, I know Stax had a record shop in the front of the building uh, and you worked there in the early days before you got really deeply involved in other aspects of the studio operations. You know, is there any way in which working in that record store, kind of interacting with customers and seeing what they liked, what they bought, kind of influenced your instincts as a songwriter? Well, I, that's a great question, but I don't know. Uh, I do know what I refer songwriting to when you're talking about hooks, <laughs> which is synonymous. I grew up fishing. Okay. And <laughs> fish, I, you, don't, you go fishing every day, they don't always bite on the same thing. You don't always catch fish on the same either <laughs> bait or the, or the same plug or whatever. And so creating... Uh, a hook in a song is sort of like something that uh, entices you to listen, you know, like the listener would entice them to listen to it more than once. And the disc jockey really had to like it. Hmm. He wouldn't play too many songs he didn't like. Sure. Even if somebody else said, you know, nowadays they play whatever they're basically told to play. But (laughs) in those days it was kind of up to the disc jockey to do most of his own programming. If he liked a song and he played it and his audience liked it and would call in and say, hey, play that again, that's the one that was in in more of a rotation. (laughs) Right, right. And so uh, I think if if you want my opinion of what a hook is, it's it's the thing, whether it's instrumental in the melody or it's the title or something, it's the thing that the listener walks away either humming or remembering what it was. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, it's probably more the the music musical hook or the or the lyric hook than it is the title because they they will sing something in a song several times and not title it that. Yeah. Right, sure. That's kind of old hat. I used to. <laughs> come up i still do when i write today i don't get as many songs recorded but when i write i come up with titles that to me write themselves all they need is a good beat and a good melody and right. you know good good performance by a singer sure but the songs kind of write themselves i mean midnight hour for example was about midnight hour i'm gonna wait till the midnight hour right take you out you know that's yeah, basically yeah. when there's not too many people around but, yeah right and uh, knock on wood was about superstitions and, uh, and for good luck i'm knocking on wood that i don't lose you that right kind of thing. sure yeah we yeah. still do that today i love coming up with ideas and like, everybody said man that's great that's a hit song i yeah. said yeah i hadn't written it yet you yeah. don't need to it's already a hit if you just tell them the title yeah yeah there's a lot to be said for uh for writing from a title um well, you know, talking about uh, Green Onions, um, that that pretty well kicked the door open for Stax Records on the national scene. It became the the title track to the MG's debut LP, which was the first album to appear on the actual Stax label, and it it kind of jump started that era when the MG's became the the house band that created that signature Memphis sound for so many other artists who came there to record. And you know, that whole time I'm sure was was very exciting, and it and it puts you in a unique position to. Uh, pitch your songs to artists and even collaborate with artists who were were coming to you. Um, so in 1963 and 1964, you wrote a handful of charting singles, including um, Rufus Thomas's Can Your Monkey Do the Dog, which fell just shy of the R&B Top 10. Um, his daughter Carla Thomas's I've Got No Time to Lose, which hit number 13 on the R&B chart. Try and see if he'll come back to me. I've got no time to lose. 
Yeah, No Time to Lose. That's a good one. Yeah, great song. Oh, what yeah. I was going to say about me being a songwriter, uh-huh. uh, the owner, Jim Stewart, he was an engineer as well and right. whatever. And he was very, very interested and wanted to hear all of the you know, musical hooks I came up with and all that. He was not interested in anything I wrote lyrically. Huh. Huh. Well, <laughs> uh, just by nature, you know, we had several uh, hit instrumentals that I either played on, and of course we had last night, and then we had Green Onions and all that, and very successful. Yeah. And uh, so he wanted to hear more of that. But I'd say, Jim, you know, I write songs. I want you to listen to something. He didn't take the time to listen to them. Huh. So I, uh, having, I guess, the business mind, or maybe just by luck, I took his favorite artist, and she came into the record shop one day, and I said, Carly, we're talking about Carla Thomas, Right. came off the big hit G-Wiz, and they'd tried for a year or so trying to get another hit single or something, and just couldn't do it. Yeah. So I said, we've written this song, and I really think you might like it. Think you've got time to come down to the piano. So she came down, and I played it, and she said, Steve, I love that song. I want to do it. And I said, great. Well, tell Jim you want to do it. <laughs> well, she did, and we recorded it, and it, it sold quite a few records. No time to lose, and all of a sudden Jim wanted to hear the rest of my song. Interesting. <laughs> so I became a lyric songwriter as well as an instrumental guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to talk about Otis Redding for a few minutes. Um, all right. In 1965, Otis hit the R&B top ten and pop top forty with Mr. Pitiful, which you guys wrote together. I'd love to hear about the first time you met Otis. I, I'm sure you've told this story a hundred thousand times, but I'd love to hear about the first time <laughs> you met him. It's a story. <laughs> and well, how you guys started uh, writing with each other. Well, Otis writing basically, as far as his connection with Stax and Volt Records, was an accident. And uh, he was a lead singer out of Macon with a band out of Macon called Johnny Jenkins and Pine Topper. Right. And they had a... a, a bit of chart action and a hit called Love Twist. And in that scenario, like we were talking about Carla, they kept trying to get a follow-up of that and just didn't come up with anything that worked. Yeah. Uh, that was catchy enough to catch on and sell a lot of records. So we were called, I guess their manager was Joe Gawkin, and he called Jerry Wexler, and Jerry called us and said, hey, we've got this this band from uh, a small group, a guitar player, a really good guitar player from Macon, Georgia, and we want to bring them up and, and see if you guys can uh, can get a you know single instrumental on them. Right. And that was the story. So we were waiting for them to show up, and we're standing outside on, on the sidewalk smoking a cigarette. So anyway, this Cadillac comes pulling up and drives by us and, and parks you know next to the curb down below the studio there. And I said, that's got to be them. And this big tall guy gets out with the keys, goes to the trunk, this big Cadillac, and unlocks it and starts getting out instruments and amps and chords, and, and he had a handful of chords with mics. And I'd go running down there and I said, hey, man, we've got mics in the studio. You're not going to need that. <laughs> so he was grabbing it like he was setting up for a gig. Right. And Otis, he wasn't, I, I thought he was the valet kind of guy. He was huh. the dri designated driver. Yeah, yeah. Which is not the case at all. 
he was the lead singer, and he just kind of helped Johnny with all of his equipment and stuff, and that's where right. it started. So anyway, we're in there cutting Johnny Johnny Jenkins, and uh, Al Jackson, the drummer, came to me, and, and I guess the story that I was told that Otis came to him first, and he said, hey, you know, I sang with a band. I want somebody, uh, I want you guys to hear me sing or somebody to hear me sing. And Al said, well, you need to talk to Steve. Now, he does auditions and all. He's the A&R director, and he does auditions and listens to people on, on the weekend, on Saturdays. Yeah. That's his designated day. So he said, I don't know if anybody will take a chance to listen to you today. We won't have time. But Al came to me and said, you know, that big tall guy that was driving and all that, he wants you to hear him saying if you have time. And I went, well, okay, we'll try to work him in somewhere. Well, we listened to a playback late that afternoon uh, on what we had done with Johnny Jenkins. We've been cutting probably from noon on. I don't know if the guys had to leave to go to their night gigs. And, right. and, and Jim says, hey, we'll pick up tomorrow. Well, Al Jackson comes to me and he said, you know, I told you about that guy. Well, he keeps bugging me. Would you please listen to this guy for just two minutes and get him off my back? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess Otis was fairly persistent. And I said, okay, we'll tell him to come down to the piano. So I walk out of the control room and go down to the piano. And this guy comes up and I says, okay, play something. He says, no, I, I don't play piano. He says, I play a little guitar. He called it called guitar. guitar. <laughs> and, uh, he said, can you just play me some of them church quads, he called them. Not chords, but quads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Otis Redding. And he just went with whatever he said. So, okay. And I said, you mean these? It was six, eight triplets. And I just grabbed, I think, beat flat, whatever it was, started playing. And he started singing these arms of mine. And wow. I'm telling you, wow. the hair on my arm stood up. I had never heard a voice that good. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, I said, just hold it right there. He said, you don't like it? And I said, I'll just hang on a minute. Stay right here. <laughs> I run up to the control room. I said, Jim, you got to come out of here and listen to this guy's voice. you got to hear him sing. He, so Jim says, oh, okay. You know, he didn't really have time. But he said, okay. I'll, and he comes down there. And we started playing again. <laughs> and Jim says, get the band. we got to get this on tape. <laughs> so. Yeah. Doug Dunn reminded me, he said, you come running out of the studio, and he said, I was putting my bass up in the trunk of the car, of the car, and, and you were hollering, get your bass out, we got to cut a song wow. real quick. <laughs> so, he was headed home, you know, he was going to put his bass up and head yeah, home, get ready yeah. for his night gig, you know, so <laughs> Doug reminded me that I did that, so I know it's a true story. Yeah. The thing about writing with Otis, most people don't know this unless I tell them, if you pick up any song that Otis recorded, and where it says either Redding Cropper or Cropper Redding, right. listen to the lyrics. It's always about him. Huh. Wow, interesting. Just like Mr. Pitiful. And uh, there was a disc jockey named Muha, and uh, he said, uh, "We got here's another one from Mr. Pitiful." <laughs> I forget what the song was. I said, "Mr. Pitiful." I went home with that that night, and the next morning I got up, take a shower, started writing a song. That's great. I picked up Otis and I sang to him in the car. What I had so far, he said, "Man, that's great, Cropper." And we finished it in the car, went in and showed it to the band. That was the first song we cut. That day. wow, <laughs> wow! And that's the first song so you and Otis wrote so, together, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, obviously, Mister Pitiful was was a big hit, and then Otis went on to release several songs that you guys wrote together, including um, "Just One More Day," which hit number fifteen on the R and B charts, and uh, right. fe, 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 fe. Is that how you say the name when it's said out loud? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you a little story about that song. Yeah. Uh, people say, "Where do you get your ideas? Where do, where do the songs come from?" And I said, "Well." <laughs> It varies. Some just fall out of the ceiling. But we were writing a song. I don't even remember what it was we were writing. And Otis says, 
man, this thing needs a, a saxophone. You know, like fast, 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 fast. I said, hold, hold it, hold it, hold it. What are you saying? <laughs> and that was his sound he was making for a saxophone. I've been singing these sad, sad, sad songs. You know, sad songs is all I knew. <laughs> <laughs> we went in the next day and cut it. Well, the biggest hit that you wrote with Otis was Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, which was released just after his tragic death in 1967. Um, you know, that record is pretty different from the typical Otis Redding sound, and I'm, I'm curious if you guys as writers were consciously kind of taking a turn in a different direction. Well, we talked about it and talked about it, and, and the, the main energy was we wanted to break Otis pop. We couldn't get any of those records They'd hint a little bit, and then boom, it was the end of it. We had put on another record. So he was really, he was well-known in Europe. He was very uh, well-played in R&B stations and was on the charts, on the R&B charts, but not so much on the pop charts. And he was the one artist that we we knew had a fan base that if we could ever get the right song, we, we'd get some pop play and get some pop interest. Right. And... Otis called me, you know, from the airport. He was so excited about the idea of Dock of the Bay. He started it in Sausalito on Bill Graham's boathouse that hmm. he stayed in. So it took me years to figure out what Otis was really singing about in the first verse because hmm. I had questioning about watching the ships roll in, watch them roll away again. <laughs> Otis, if the ship rolls, it's going to take on water and sink. And he says, no, 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 that's what I want. So you didn't, you didn't, you didn't argue too long with Otis. <laughs> you just let him go with it. Well, it took me years to figure that he was not singing about ships. He was singing about ferries. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they do, they roll up a big wake when they go to park and let the cars and people off. And that's what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Watch them roll in, watch them roll away again. And that's what they do. Yeah, because they're just a bulky, big old square thing floating in the water, and they push up a big wake. Yeah, unlike a streamlined sailboats or whatever. And uh, I always just envisioned a boat going under the Golden Gate Bridge. Hmm. Uh, those are not the lyrics that I wrote. Uh, you know, you start with the second verse, and it's all about left my home in Georgia and headed for the Frisco Bay and all that sort of stuff. Well, it was actually. The bay after the Oakland Bay it wasn't the first. Bay. <laughs> right. So you just never know what a song does. Right, 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 right. And people relate to that. I'm, you know, my life is so screwed up. I'm just going to sit on the dock of the bay here and waste some time and yeah. try to figure all this out. And I guess <laughs> people relate to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And and that was, I mean, you you had to do a pretty what I'm sure was an emotionally difficult thing in terms of getting that song ready for release. Well, that was almost impossible. I don't know how I did that. Yeah, yeah. If I ever had to do anything difficult, that was it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was rough. I, they called, uh, when I say the Atlantic Records call, and says, what do you got ready? We got to get a record out right away on Otis Redding. And I said, we don't have anything ready. We hadn't, you know, we've been cutting for two weeks. We didn't have anything finished or mixed or whatever. Yeah. But we got to get a record out. And I said, man, it's still worried. In the morning, I guess you would say, and uh, just, I didn't feel like even doing anything for months. Yeah. And I went in on a, what did I go in on? A Tuesday morning, because they called us on a Monday. 
his plane went down on Sunday. And uh, I went in on Tuesday morning in the control room by myself at 7.30 and worked 24 at 7.30 that the following morning um, on a Wednesday. I went to the airport and handed a flight attendant uh, who was headed on American Airlines to LaGuardia Airport and handed her this tape. <laughs> there was no copies of it. Wow. This tape, which when the plane got there, there was a representative from Atlantic that was there to pick it up when she you know, when they put the stairs up for the plane, she walks down and hands this guy the tape. That was it. I don't remember anything I did after that. I, it's, it's, I remember that whole 24-hour period. Yeah. Uh, and the last I remember the last time I saw this was the Friday before. And uh, I got out, Doc of the Bay, and he came in, popped his head in the control room, and he said, Steve, he said, I'll see you on Monday. I said, great. And this was a Friday afternoon. He was leaving to go to his Friday night gig where he was going to. He got his own plane, so yeah. Anyway, I was setting up to do those electric guitar licks. So I was never heard those. Never heard the mm. gulls, seagulls, and the waves, the ocean waves that I right. put in the, in the record. And you, they're back in the background. The, the guitar licks are out pretty front, but yeah. the, the other stuff is in the background. You don't hear it unless you really listen for it. Yeah. But he didn't. He never heard the record mix, unfortunately. Wow. But wow. we had been living with that song and that, the take of that song for about two weeks, sure. week and a half, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. we knew, and and the thing was, the reason we didn't finish it right away and say this is it, because we already had we had cut the horns live and a bunch of stuff. He wanted to put backgrounds on. I said, you know, next week after, well, the week after next, I guess after you leave, we're through with you. I'm doing the Staple Singers. I said, I know I can get them to sing backgrounds. Wow. Oh, wow. He says, man, that'd be fantastic. Well, it would have been. Yeah. And if they had done it, I probably wouldn't have thought of doing uh, the waves and all that, but. When we were doing the demo, Otis was clowning around trying to make a sound of a seagull. <laughs> it sounded like some kind of dying crow. I don't know. <laughs> that inspired me to go, and I called my friend uh, Jimmy Gaines, who was working at, at that time at uh, Pepper Tanner uh, Jingle Company. And uh, I said, do you have any soundtrack albums out there with uh, over there with any waves and seagull? He said, oh, yeah, come on over. I'll, I'll pull some for you. <laughs> So we went through several, and I picked the ones that I picked, and we made a made a tape loop out of them, and uh, that's what's on the record. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the evening comes, watching the ships roll in, and then I watch them roll away again. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay. Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Well, that is just one of the greatest songs ever by one of my favorite artists ever. Um, but, you know, before that moment with Otis Redding, uh, back in 1965, you had had two songs in the R&B Top 5 that were recorded by your co-writer, Wilson Pickett. And those songs, of course, were Don't Fight It and then the number one single, In the Midnight Hour. I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour That's when my love comes tumbling down I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour When there's no one else around I'm Uh, 
uh, tell us a bit about your writing relationship with Wilson in terms of kind of your process. Uh, Jay Wexler called and said, we have this artist that we're having trouble coming up with a hit single for. I'd like to bring him down and see what you guys could do with him. And they told the name, and, and I think uh, Jim Stewart told Estelle, and Miss Saxon told me this in the record shop. And she said, they're bringing down an artist named, artist named Wilson Pickett. And I'm going, who is Wilson Pickett? Yeah. Well, they'd already done a little research. He, he sang with the Fal- Falcons, so he knew Eddie Floyd and Mac Rice and all these guys, Benny right. King and everybody. And uh, so I'm trying to find something on him, and we can't really find any, any singles that merit anything. But we knew the, the voice, and, and found, other than the Falcons being part of a group, and we found a, a couple of, I wish I had them today, I don't know what they were, a couple of gospel songs hmm. that he would sing lead on. And he would go into his ad-lib and then in, oh, I'm going to wait till the midnight hour. Don't see my Jesus in the midnight hour. Oh, in the midnight hour. Right. I said, that's that guy's identity in the midnight hour. Yeah. And he brought down, he had most of that uh, Don't Fight It song. And it's about a wallflower, dancing wallflower. Don't fight it. you got to feel it. Don't just sit there, get up, and enjoy everybody. Yeah. It's a great idea. So I had the midnight hour unfinished idea, and he had Don't Fight It pretty much finished. We wrote that. We Well, here's the deal. We picked him and Jerry Wexler up at the airport, checked them into a Holiday Inn, and uh, the one at Crosstown that's not there anymore. But anyway, Jerry Wexler said, Jim and I, Jim Stewart, and I are going to go have a, a little meeting, and you guys go ahead and get started writing. So their meeting lasted, and, and uh, they went had dinner or whatever, and they came back to check on us. And I uh, knocked on the door, and it was them. They said, how's it coming? I said, well, pretty good. You want to hear what we've been doing? And we played them in the midnight hour. Wow. <laughs> don't fight it. And they were, wow. Well, we're not going to interrupt you guys anymore. Go ahead and keep writing. You know, well, you, you have both of them back. done already? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Pretty much. And uh, here's the funny thing. So then we wrote another song, more of in the gospel vein, and that's, I just come up with this gospel rhythm that I was really into gospel in those days, and Wilson loved it, you know, and it was a little song called I'm Not Tired. I've been loving you mm. a long, long time, and I'm not tired. Yeah. We went in the studio the next day and cut all three songs. Oh, wow. <laughs> and every one of them went up the charts. So yeah. There you go. So the so the first the first song that you wrote with Otis Redding was Mr. Pitiful, and the first song you wrote with Wilson Pickett was In the Midnight Hour? Jeez. That's amazing. <laughs> well, in 1966, the hits kept on coming with Wilson Pickett, including 634, 5789, and 99 and a half won't do. In both cases, we see Eddie Floyd as your co-writer, and he's someone that you collaborated with a good bit on songs for other artists, including Sam and Dave's Top 20 single, You Don't Know What You Mean to Me, and, and plenty of others. Um, talk about what made your collaborations with Eddie such a success. You know, I think uh, just... Eddie's nature. Uh, he's just a great guy, and he doesn't uh, balk on things. If you have a kind of a silly idea, or something like that, he he sees it through before the decision is made by both parties. That well, this is probably not making it. Yeah. And sometimes you write with people that immediately go, eh, "I don't like that. Don't want to write with that." And uh, but Eddie's not that way. He sees it through. And uh, to an example for me doing it. I, I go down to uh, the Rame Hotel one night, and uh, the minute Eddie answers the door, he says, I got a hit idea. And I said, what? And he says, I want to write a song about superstitions. Hmm. And I said, okay. <clears throat> so I get my guitar out and start playing a little bit. 
and we went through about every superstition you can name, (laughs) (laughs) from umbrellas, you know, ladders, the obvious ones, black cats, to uh, putting uh, uh, salt over your shoulder (laughs) and breaking champagne glasses and all that, and it just didn't seem to gel. And we had run through, and we're sitting there just staring at each other, and I said, hey, I said, what do people do for good luck? And he says, well, he hit his armor's chair on wood. And I said, yeah, they knock on wood for good luck. There is our song. And I said, knock on wood. I don't want to lose this good thing that I got. This woman is so great. I don't want to lose her. I'm going to knock on wood for good luck. And that's where that song came from. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. But we had been writing for a long time. I mean, a long time that evening with different ideas on different superstitions. It just didn't gel out. We weren't smart like Stevie Wonder. (laughs) (laughs) He's superstitious. There's a there's a song called I'm Sick Y'all on Otis Redding's fifth studio album that's credited to you and, and Otis and, and David Porter. And David, of course, is best known for his songwriting collaborations with Isaac Hayes, uh, with right. whom he wrote a song called Candy that became a number 12 R&B hit for the Astors in 1965. Very good. Very um, thorough. <laughs> you know, obviously... Da, 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 da. <laughs> it's a good record. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the team of, of Hayes and Porter looms large in, in Stack's lore, and there were, of course, other skilled songwriters there, such as uh, Booker T and William Bell and Homer Banks and, and Eddie Floyd, of course, whom we've mentioned. Um, now, you worked with these guys, and, and you wrote songs with them um, and collaborated, you know, round the clock, right. but I'm curious if there was ever a sense of, of rivalry, you know, friendly or otherwise, when it came to competing to get your songs onto those hit records. No, I don't think so. But the thing about the success was a, was a real team from the writers on up, and the musicians played on songs as a team. There was no competition. I'm doing this, you're, you know, it wasn't any of that. Yeah. Later in our careers, way later, when big business got involved, and then it became, um, I think, the, the first, situation was i want my name on the record as producer i don't want to see something that says produced by staff anymore or yeah. written by staff right. you know people wanted it one of their own identity well within their rights to have that you know right but i think in the interim of that not immediately it took a long time it it sort of did break everybody up into individuals and it kind of broke up the team hmm. yeah. yeah and it's it's sort of like i, I look at it there's no foolproof way of anything but if you compared it to sports if somebody has the money to buy the greatest players in a sport that all have this fantastic name value and they can afford them if they don't play as a team they're not going to win the pennies at the end of the <laughs> right, year right. i don't care who you are you you got to throw your ego out and play as a team whether right. it's basketball or baseball or what it is sure 
saw the same thing with football. I mean, you, you can have a bunch of superstars. If they play as a team, they will win games. If they don't, they're not going to. One man doesn't, doesn't win the show. So. Right, right. Yeah, we yeah. worked as a team for all those years at Stacks, and it was way. I think it was either late '68 or in '69 when I think when we left and uh, started doing, uh, you know, work. We left Atlantic and you know after Otis and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. and I'm not naming any la- labels. I mean, I can say who we were with. That's easy enough to say. When we were with Paramount, they. They were in a business. They wanted to change stacks uh, from a what we what I thought we were were a singles company hmm. making the best chart singles on the planet to albums. Yeah, yeah. Because it was the, the transition of the days. People bought albums rather than singles. Right. And the difference was, I think, the individuals, the individual producers and songwriters, instead of working on one or two songs or three or four songs for a session for an artist. We were working on three or four albums at a time. Hmm. We'll multiply that times ten. So instead of four songs, we're working on thirty some odd songs. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it's just that the workload of that, and and then the other was trying to schedule the guys to play. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. were all doing their own thing, and you just couldn't get Booker T, Duck Dunn, and Al Jackson and myself on the same session. Yeah, wow. right, right. Or Isaac as well. And the reason there was an Isaac Hayes is because. Not too long after Green Onions in the early '60s, Booker went off to college. He wanted to finish and complete his education. Huh. Well, well, so we needed a piano player, and somebody yeah. suggested uh, Isaac Hayes, and I went and listened to him. And uh, turned out he already knew uh, uh, David Porter, and they were real good friends. So it was easy to convince Jim. This is the guy. He writes songs. He plays piano. He's great. He's grounded. He's a good musician put him on salary and so he did and it worked out really good yeah that was way before the hayes and porter combination right and right. they just hit it off because david knew isaac and uh they were a lot of hits together yeah sure did and my inter- you didn't ask me about this but my interaction with one of the songs was soul man and yeah. uh isaac came to me and he said crop he said you got a minute and i was back logging tapes or mixing or doing something i said well, what do you need? He said, David and I, I know we've written a hit for Sam and Dave that we knew we were going to record the next day. And he said, man, I've tried everything. I can't come up with an intro for it. And I was kind of known as the intro guy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> From Knock yeah. on Wood and all those intros and the midnight hour and stuff. Right. And I'd come up with these dynamic kind of intros. The reason I did that was to have something instrumentally the disc jockeys couldn't talk over <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> <laughs> because usually most of those songs didn't have any intro they just kind of started yeah. playing for two to four bars and the disc jockey would talk you know his wares or commercials or whatever he was doing until the singer started singing then mm-hmm. he would stop and when the singer stopped he'd start talking again and i said i knew enough about radio and, and disc jockeys were friends of mine and would sit there and watch them on their shows and stuff, and I realized that, and I said, man, we've got to start writing some music they can't talk over. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Talk, up to, talk all the way up to the time you start spinning the record and listen to this thing. <laughs> I'm not going to make you say anything specific about Soul Man or, or any specific song, but are there songs that you feel like maybe you 
you know, could have deserved a writing credit on because of the instrumental <laughs> contributions that you made that you didn't get a writing credit on? Probably, but I'm not going to be specific about right. it. Right, I, I want to ask you to, but... There's, you know, I look at it very simply. I I, I really did get more than I deserve. I, mm. I, that's the way I feel about it. I did contribute, but I, but I was well taken care of. And I don't look back at those, or, and even at the time saying, there's maybe there's maybe one or two in the in the stacks in the early days. I'm saying, you know, a lot of guys. I'll tell you how we worked. If you look at the instrumentals we had out, the guys credited writing of the guys that played on the record. Yeah. And Jim Stewart came up with that theory, and and got tired of asking who wrote what. Well, if you contributed to the the song itself, then you got a credit for it. Yeah. Not necessarily on, on vocal songs with vocal artists because right. you had nothing to do with writing the melody or the lyrics. So uh, you might have played on it, but that's that's where, you know. But anyway, in the early days, uh, there was one that uh, I'm not, there's no guitar on it. There was, really wasn't a place for guitar, but I am on the record. It was, <laughs> I helped put the band together. It was my thing, and I felt like, you know, I should have had a writing credit on that. Right, there right. were some other guys that thought so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, but I had plenty later, so it yeah. didn't, it just didn't matter. I I don't have any feelings toward that one or the other. Well, you definitely did have plenty of songs and plenty of hits, and and you went on to have success as a producer too. And you played with literally everybody. You even went to Nashville and had a top forty country hit with Neil McCoy, um, "Going Going Gone." Uh, man. I find myself wishing we had an entire day. I, I wish we had another like five or six hours to talk about everything you've played on, I mean, everything you've been a part of. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's been amazing. It's, been, it's a, what they say, a heck of a ride. It's been a lot of fun. And, well, yeah. But I don't go around thinking about any of this stuff. It takes somebody like you to ask me a question. Yeah, leads yeah. me into, oh, yeah, I do remember playing on so-and-so. Or yeah, I yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, it is an honor. I mean, you have played oh, on so many you. of the songs that are kind of the soundtrack of our lives and written so many great songs and so thank you so much for doing this today this has been great you bet my pleasure glad to do it and say hello to california for me I will. <laughs> thank you for listening to find out more about our guests stream episodes get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews or to contact us with your feedback visit songcraftshow.com while you're there sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the songcraft universe We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.